G'day, it's Parky here with the Cancel Sailwatch podcast. Today we talk about the very special experience of first flight as Luke returns from his first instructional flight and the first step of fulfilling his dream of being a professional pilot. In this episode, Sam, Luke and I compare first flight experiences from our three different generations. From Luke's first flight just recently in 2016, to my own first flight in 1994, to Sam's in 1972. And via our Cancel Sailwatch Retro Salute, we look at the very first manned flight from the backyard of a chateau in Paris in 1783. All this today on the Cancel Sailwatch Podcast. So what's the Cancel Sailwatch podcast all about? Well, it's where three pilots from three different generations, 22 years apart, gather every two weeks to pursue the spirit of flight. Sam's our baby boomer pilot who first flew in the early 70s and safely logged five decades worth of military, police, rescue and instructional time. Parky, that's me, is our Gen X pilot and I began flying in the early 90s. I've got a passion for safety management along with 20 years of military, rescue and instructional time. And of course, there's our new Gen Y pilot in training, Luke, who just kicked off his flying career by signing up for pilot training at a local flight school. Three different generations of pilots with three very different generational perspectives talk through the joys and challenges of flight as Luke progresses through pilot training and beyond. From the first spark of aviation curiosity to going solo and onwards to a professional career, Sam, Parkey and Luke passionately pursue the spirit of flight within the now highly technical experience of modern day aviation. As you listen, you'll get a couch-side, behind-the-scenes perspective into the training, the knowledge and the attitude it takes for a pilot to finish a flight and radio in to air traffic control, cancel Sailwatch. Hope you enjoy our conversation, and if you reckon it's worth it, please rate and comment. Also, why not visit the cancelsailwatch.com website for additional content such as pictures, memorabilia, safety articles to help you cancel Sailwatch. And now, on with today's conversation. So we start our show today with our Retro Salute segment. This is a remembrance salute to a generation of aviators we wish we could have had on the show. Since humankind took to the sky, or tried to take to the sky, there have been many an airborne adventure, many a true spirit of flight account told and then forgotten. If we could, we would have shattered these past aviators a good coffee, a comfy couch and a wireless mic to talk it up on Cancel Sailwatch as a historical fourth generation to our three existing generations. But of course, many of these aviators are now long gone or outside the budget of our humble podcast, and so too our opportunity for a cool interview. But their stories persist, and so we retell them here as a fitting intro to our own Spirit of Flight Cancel Sailwatch discussions. Today it's a retro salute to aviators from the distant past called Aeronauts. This was a title used to describe the first ballooning aviators, the first real aviators to break the bounds of Earth 120 years before the Wright brothers. Cancel Sailwatch disclaimer, all care and no responsibility for my Australianised Ocker version of French names. Their names were Jean-Francois, Pilatre de Rosier, and the Marquis Francois Laurent Laveau d'Alendaz. And I'm pretty happy I just got that out. Anyway, their own aviation adventure was at the very beginning of humankind's journey into the sky. 
prior to their first flight on November 21st, 1783, no man had ascended more than a few feet above the ground for a few seconds. Many, of course, had strapped strange contraptions of feathers and wood to themselves before throwing themselves from high places to injury or death. Mostly non-French, I'm pretty sure the French would point out. None prior to De Rosier and the Marquis had managed to break the bounds of earth and arise. Most just broke bones and died. De Rosier was a chemistry and physics teacher for noblemen, one of whom was the brother of King Louis of France. In June of 1783, De Rosier saw for himself the first public demonstration of a large balloon built by the Montgolfier brothers. These papermakers had apparently discovered, when watching their drying shirts billow upwards over a wood fire, heated air would rise and from that simple observation built a balloon of linen and bonded paper 23 metres high and 13 metres wide. Yep, you heard that right. The first balloon was paper-covered linen with a straw fire underneath. It was also decorated with blue and gold, which I reckon made it look more like an oversized Christmas ornament than a serious flying machine. And if you look at early art of the balloon, you'll see what I mean. I've linked to this on the Cancel Sailwatch website if you're interested. Anyway, DeRosier reportedly first saw the Montgolfier balloon successfully take the sky on a test run with a rooster, a duck and a sheep as passengers. No one was really sure what would happen back then when a human being ascended into the sky, so the sheep was sent up as supposedly best representing human physiology. The duck as a previous frequent flyer for comparison, and the rooster as something in between as it can only fly a few feet off the ground. Anyway, all three ascended and then descended safely, at least according to official reports. Unofficial reports observed that the rooster had been kicked and injured by the sheep, and the duck was found, for some strange reason, cowering in the corner of the basket. Nonetheless, when De Rosier saw the balloon take to the sky, even with the unimpressive animal passengers, he was enthralled and determined that he, not the condemned criminals King Louis intended, should be amongst the first men to fly. He enlisted the help of a governess to Marie Antoinette to convince the king and queen such an auspicious attempt should be completed by noblemen, not by criminals. To his great relief, the king agreed, and so it was, with not a little excitement, De Rosier and the Marquis prepared to launch from the grounds of a beautiful Paris chateau, while the criminals were led back to prison to await execution. The first balloon filled with hot air, but the wind proved too strong for the tether ropes and, in front of thousands of enthusiastic spectators, proceeded to tilt and ram itself into nearby garden equipment, tearing a six-foot-long gash in its side. Undeterred, De Rosier and the Marquis gathered their thoughts and were able to make some quick repairs and in the early afternoon, with plenty of straw, sponges and buckets of water, the first airborne fire suppression system, which they would shortly need, lifted into the sky in a paper-covered balloon propelled by a straw fire. That must have been very cool for the crowd and exciting. In fact, many in the crowd thought the aeronauts would be doomed as soon as the balloon reached a decent height, but they were not doomed. They were actually inspired, especially De Rosier, as he and the Marquis had a view no human had ever seen before. They could literally see for many miles out over the spires, steeples and roofs of Paris and into the countryside beyond. De Rosier was evidently so taken with the experience he strongly disagreed with the Marquis when the Marquis insisted it was time to descend. Instead he fed the fire with more straw hoping to extend the flight as long as possible. The Marquis uttered his disapproval again 
now in a slightly anxious but still gentlemanly tone, but his complaints must have distracted DeRosier because in his enthusiasm with the straw and the fire, DeRosier had caused a part of the balloon to catch on fire. Upon hearing cracking sounds as support ropes holding the basket broke, the Marquis' gentlemanly tone turned to very ungentlemanly screams, the plain meaning of which was they should descend immediately. DeRosier quickly set about putting the sponges and the water to work, and with the Marquis' enthusiastic help, they were able to put the fire out. However, on looking out from their work, and with the straw fire abating, they noticed they were descending rapidly towards the sharp and threatening rooftops of Paris. They looked at each other aghast as there was no way they could survive a collision with an unyielding church spire or rooftop and more than that it was highly likely they would set some building on fire in the ensuing arrival. At this point there was a panic shove and DeRosier was pushed to one side by the Marquis as it was evidently the Marquis's turn to stoke the straw fire which he did with a gusto as the uninviting Paris skyline drew closer. Thankfully the heat of his enthusiasm was proportionate to the heat of the fire and they began ascending again. After a 25-minute flight, and without further incident, they were able to settle safely in the French countryside. Any latent angst between DeRosier and the Marquis was quickly forgiven when the Marquis produced a fine bottle of champagne and they celebrated the first manned aviation flight with raised glasses, exuberant backslaps and laughter. From then on, these two and others who would follow would be known as aeronauts and there will be many more adventures involving balloon flights, which I hope will retell in due time on the Cancel Sailwatch podcast. But for now, it's back to 2016, where Sam, Luke, and I talk about the first flight of the aeronauts and our own, thankfully very different, first flights. So I just brought out the, the account of the first ascent into the sky, into the heavens, and just imagining those two guys sitting in the balloon and just watching the ground slowly fall away, as we've seen Sam and obviously Lucas seen a little bit of now as well, and seen so many times. For me, it's still a great joy, just that initial lift off mm. and then arrival back on the ground. There's just something magical about that. It's something always mystical about leaving the ground and then departing into the heavens, so to speak. And I mean, these two guys in, a, in a, and essentially paper covered linen balloon doing that in the early days no one else has done it before that's their literally the first flight of humankind a successful flight anyway is pretty amazing and i guess this whole podcast really is about trying to talk about discuss articulate define that spirit of aviation those values those attitudes those emotions and feelings that go with a pure Mm. sense of flight Obviously, things have changed a lot since powered flight in 1903. Things have changed a lot since that first balloon flight. My supposition or my premise is that the spirit of it is still pretty much the same, even with the highly technical side or the technical nature of it today. So, Luke, you've obviously had your first instructional flight um, not too long ago. Obviously, uh, our two aeronauts that we were just talking about didn't have too many manuals or briefs or podcasts or no. YouTube videos to watch. I know you've been looking at YouTube a bit. So you've had your first instructional flight, first official flight. What are some of your initial perceptions, senses and stuff of what happened? Um, I think because I'd been flying with my father before uh, my initial training flight and it's very different 
just taking over the aircraft and flying around with your dad who knows all the theory and you just get to kind of like go left and right up and down it's very different when you are trying to think about oh what's my stall speed and all yeah. these other the actual theory behind why you're flying and when you're ascending and descending I just remember it was really exciting but man as soon as I got back on the ground I was just so fatigued clearly mentally drained but it was like it was really good it was pretty awesome I guess I probably just wasn't ready for how mentally draining it was going to be trying to practically implement all the stuff that we talked about previously in the briefing it's a yeah. lot to a lot to take on but it's super fun yeah yeah cool. yeah what what aircraft were you flying flying a little piper tomahawk Oh, so, nice. So just describe that for maybe some people that aren't necessarily pilots. It's a little um, two-seater low-wing trainer. Not not overly quick, but um, you get really good visibility because the whole cockpit's kind of like glass the whole way over your, over your head. Yeah. Really fun little little trainer. Nice little thing to putt around in. Yeah, is it aerobatic as well? Not sure. We haven't got to stall. <laughs> we haven't got to stalls and spins yet. I don't think you could go invertible Well, because it, it's not gravity-fed, but I don't think it's got fuel pumps or whatever that would mm. work mm-hmm. upside down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. probably not aerobatic, no. Yeah, okay. So was there anything that, apart from the mental drain, anything else that really you were kind of taken by surprise? The one thing that stands out, which is probably a bit obscure, is um, after driving a car for so long, yeah. I'm used to using the pedals in a car and how much effort you need to put in to put the accelerator on. It's not very much at all. So uh, when I got told to start steering the aircraft on the ground, I was kind of thinking the resistance would be similar to like a, uh, a car. And in yeah. fact, you have to like almost throw your whole body weight on this thing yeah. to actually try and drive it on the ground. So when we were lining up on the runway and my instructor said, all right, you're going to be keeping it on the center line in the runway as we put on the throttle and obviously due to all the secondary effects and torques and everything, it's trying to kick itself off the runway and I'm trying to learn how much pressure I'm supposed to put on the, the rudder pedals. Yeah. And so that was probably the thing that caught me out the most, especially because I've been flying with my dad in a helicopter. I think yeah. it's, I don't know, it just seems a bit easier to use the rudder, rudder pedals in a helicopter. I'm not mm. sure if there's any uh, theory behind that, but yeah, that certainly caught me off guard and it was a bit uh, yeah, right. wiggly, wiggly on the runway. Yeah. <laughs> No, I guess uh, there is a big difference with helicopters. The control inputs are generally hydraulic assisted, not in all cases, but mm. yeah, and they're generally a lot less. But we're going to talk a lot more about helicopters and versus mm. fixed wing in the future. So when was that? That was about a week ago. The now yeah, that was uh, Saturday the second. So. Two thousand and sixteen. Yep. Pilot training to Sam. When was your first instructional flight? Early nineteen seventy two. 1972. So you weren't born, Luke. I was one year old. So tell us a little bit about that first flight, Sam. I'd applied for flying training with the Army, and I thought it was a good idea to, before I fronted up to the uh, selection board, to see if I could have a bit of experience, isn't it? Mm. So I joined the Point Cook Flying Club, which ran at that time Cherokee 140, which is a low wing, like sitting in a car, but a low wing. Yeah. Propeller out the front mm-hmm. and 140 horsepower. Not hugely powerful, but good little yeah. training. Yeah, so side by side. Side by side. Yeah, seating, yeah. Mm. And I had done the uh, theory, all swept up on that. A lot of fairly keen sort of a, to prepare myself and everything before I do whatever it is. The uh, the big phenomena that I found was really swept up on all the theory until the damn thing started up. <laughs> and, then, and then I forgot the whole lot. So I kind of, it was just absolutely in awe. I've been in aircraft and, and even been in helicopters quite a bit before too mm. as, as a passenger but mm. to be up the front and, and then about to be thrown in the deep end it, it, I was just along for the ride and hanging onto the, onto the tail and thinking how mm. wonderful this is to be yeah. finally in the front instead mm. of in the back 
And I don't, I don't know what it is about that and those initial moments when the engine does first start up from whatever <laughs> aircraft. And like you said, you kind of feel like you're prepped up or whatever. And then that engine starts, it's like your brain just dumps its information, dumps its situational awareness. If they looked at your pupils, they'd probably be dilated and be yeah. like that here and the headlights kind of look. Yeah. You know, 1972, 2016 how is it listening to luke kind of having his first flight and remembering back to your first flight yeah quite amazing the similarities control forces surprised me mm-hmm. to uh, keep it on the runway try, trying to keep it straight and especially uh, turning it and having to put your rudder in and then use your toe brakes and mm. using muscles you never used before mm. the other thing which uh, i certainly commiserate with you was uh, the mental pressure Mm. of flying for a certain amount of time you come down you're just absolutely knackered and you think what mm. have I been doing for the last yeah. hour <laughs> am I going to be able to keep up this flying plane it's <laughs> exhausting yeah physiologically I think I've seen different studies and so forth but your brain consumes the greater majority of the body's energy physiologically I think it's 30 or 40 percent it's a lot anyway particularly when there's sort of high demand stuff going on mm. so it's not probably that much of a surprise really that you do feel that sense mm. of being drained but it does get better body your brain everything does begin to compensate mm. um, my first flight was at Tamworth in a CT4 Bravo aero trainer the army as I understand it chose that particular trainer because its glide ratio was not that good and was similar to a helicopter the idea being that most army pilots would go on to helicopter training it was a cheaper sort of alternative as well and my first instructor Bernie Gleason uh, took me up I remember the first sense of again just the awe of the engine starting even though it was only a relatively small engine compared to other aircraft that I would later on fly but it was a hot Tamworth day and we pulled the canopy down and I immediately started sweating and didn't stop <laughs> and then immediately began to feel just a little bit queasy <laughs> probably the excitement and maybe the nervousness because as Sam would know most flights um, in the military are pretty much all assessed and you have to meet a certain standard and otherwise you have to do remediation and then if you fail the next one you're kind of out at least back in those mm-hmm. days so I was a bit nervous about all that but Bernie was pretty good he, he rode me pretty hard in the aircraft he was always a hard taskmaster but that first day I just remember lining up on the runway and he was pretty much flying and then yeah just giving it a gut full of throttle and the machine starts flying or starts running along the runway and then it launches itself into the sky and the ground's receding and the clouds are getting closer and I'm starting to feel just a little bit more queasy <laughs> and uh, takes us out to the training area and goes oh buggy how about we do some uh, arrows and I was like mm, okay oh, yeah. and in the back of my mind I'm going oh I don't know about this and, <laughs> And so he started with the whole idea was to sort of inspire you a little bit, show you what the aircraft could do. And so he, he, I think the first thing he showed me was um, basically the aircraft's nose is put down, it accelerates downwards and then pull up and you keep going up, up, up until all the airspeed basically dribbles off and there's nothing left and then it'll either go forward or backward. He decided to flip backwards and I just remember complete disorientation. You're weightless up, down, I don't know what was going on and then flipping over and then all of a sudden I'm just dry reaching. (laughs) Thankfully nothing was coming out and Bernie's looking at me going, oh, 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 we might have to get you a little bit of Avamine, which was a drug they used to give you back then. But from then on, I just kept getting sick. So my first instructional flight was one of mixed feelings of (laughs) being queasy and dry reaching and yet at the same time it's, whoa, this is awesome, you know, and then all the pressure of knowing that that's day one and then you've got this big, long aviation journey ahead of you. Hmm. But every journey is one step at a time, so that's kind of what we're talking about Mm. anyway. But I think, yeah, I felt that sense as well with the controls. They didn't quite do what I thought they would do. I guess in your head, mentally, you have an idea, and that's quickly dispelled by Mm. reality. But that was my first flight, and that would have been 
1994. So we've got 1972, 1994, and 2016. Yeah, it's a good mix. What's mm. happened in all those years? Mm. Just talk us through the flight. Um, so for the flight, it's basically just like effects of controls. For anyone who's played flight sim before, you get the primary effects, but mm -hmm. unless you turn it on advanced mode, you don't get any of the secondary effects. Oh, so right. it was interesting seeing when you kind of start rolling, that also produces a yaw. When you start yawing, that also produces a roll. You pitch up and down, changes your speed and everything like that. But yeah, so we kind of just did effects of controls uh, and then just flying straight and level. And that was pretty interesting because I don't think ever kind of played flight sim a fair bit before so I can actually read instruments fairly well but obviously mm. I'm learning VFR. My uh, instructor kind of caught on to the fact that I was looking at my vertical speed indicator uh. the whole time as opposed to trying to fly VFR so. So just hold, hold that thought. What do we call that, Sam? When someone's <laughs> looking at the instruments all the time. Oh yeah, the uh, <coughs> what, what do you call it? I call it performance flight. Oh, <laughs> Which all helicopter pilots actually do. They're not supposed to. We do it anyway. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, performance flying just simply means uh, an unhealthy fixation on the instruments to the mm. detriment of attitude. Yeah. So I don't know if they went through the theory with you, but attitude plus power always equals performance. performance. Yeah. But the best way, especially when you're flying VFR or you know with a visual horizon, is mm. to use mm. the visual horizon. Yeah. Yeah. rather than fixate on the instruments so uh, good instructor yeah no well they ended up, that up pretty uh, early. She, and what she ended up doing was just getting a piece of paper and chucking it in front of the instrument so I couldn't see yeah. anything so I was, <laughs> I was forced right. to look out so that was, that was pretty nice. cool um, and, but towards the end of it I got the whole idea of you know picking a spot on the windscreen mm -hmm. and just keeping that at the same level on the horizon and then was able to kind of hold it fairly well and so that was, that was pretty cool a little intro to yeah. flying straight and level and then we just did kind of ascending and descending doesn't sound like much but when you are looking into you know how icing can form in the carburetor and making sure yeah. you're putting on the carb heat before you mm -hmm. start descending and it's kind of all that theory you learn on the ground and yeah. then, like Sam said you just completely forget about it as soon as you get <laughs> get in the aircraft and you're just like oh yeah. go down right up so straighten level and climb and, and descend cool yeah. no worries yeah. do you get marks you do get like general feedback as you're flying and yeah. then a very short debrief at the end. At the very beginning of the pilot's license, it's mm. kind of the markers just demonstrated. So yeah. I have a demonstrated ability to fly yeah. straight and level yeah. um, and ascend and descend. As I get closer to the check ride for, for the first solo and yeah. to actually get the recreational pilot's license, yeah. uh, then they start kind of marking you probably on a score of yeah. I think four to one, one yeah. being the best and four meaning you probably need to spend a bit more time doing it. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, well that, that's actually very similar to the way I was marked as well in the military. It was generally mm -hmm. one, three to four, where four was the best. Was that the same for you back in 1972 or when you went on to pilot schools? Uh, Sam? I don't remember. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Do you remember much about that first flight? My instructor in the aero club was Steve Tizard. He was the mm. ALO at Army Liaison Officer down mm -hmm. at Point Cook, and which I became later on in my career. And part of the deal was that you volunteered free of charge mm. to instruct at the uh, aero club. Mm -hmm. So Steve was uh, my first instructor, very, very good, very laid back as a civvy when you were paying for it. Okay. A whole different ball game when, he's, uh, when you're not paying for it and the Army's marking you. And did you do a similar thing or did you do a bit more in that first <coughs> Can you remember, was it? Yeah, it was, it was all fairly laid back, but uh, it was mm. once again effects of controls, but we did a bit more and uh, certainly turns. That was over the Bellarine Peninsula, you know, obviously around Melbourne. It was very yeah. pretty, it was a lovely mm. day. He actually uh, got me to drive around the circuit and yeah. approach and, and follow him through on the landing. So we did a fair bit, really. 
And so just in terms of that, that first flight, obviously it's the intro and like I said, you kind of, I felt anyway that there's this big massive journey looming ahead with I know there's gonna be lots of tests, lots of obstacles and uh, you know, lots of ups and downs, pun intended. Mm. So yeah, I guess hopes and, let's just talk some hopes and concerns that sort of may have sprung forth from that flight. First of all, just concerns, like any sort of concerns thinking towards the future. Concerns thinking towards the future. I do do a fair bit of research into like aviation safety mm. and stuff like that. And I'm actually reading a book called The Killing Zone at the moment, which mm. is basically, it kind of talks about there's an area between 50 hours and mm. 350 hours when the accident rate of pilots is mm. the highest. Mm. You know, being around the aviation industry all my life with my father and being in the army, I kind of, I'm aware that there's a lot that I don't know. Mm. So I kind of, it's that tricky balance between trying to learn as much as quickly as I can, but also make, make it meaningful yeah. and actually being able to retain it properly yeah, um, as yeah. opposed to just kind of superficially trying to learn as much as I can. And so I think that's just, that's probably my only concern. I think, you know, it's a healthy one to have in the back of your mind, but at the end of the day, like for the first, you know, 50 hours or whatever, I'm always going to be with the trainer and everything as well. So I've kind of got yeah. their safety net, I guess, yeah. um, while I'm trying to get up to speed. Well, that sense of, or heightened sense of consequence as well from, from I guess, you use driving before compared mm. to flying. Mm. And obviously there's lots of really bad car accidents, but even in terms of an engine fire in a car, you can just simply pull over to the side of the road and yeah. pull RACQ, whereas if that happens in your tomahawk, yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously the consequences are higher. We have to be able to manage that. Mm. So yeah, I guess what, we, what we'll do later on, we'll actually spend probably a couple of uh, episodes talking about accidents and talking about perhaps friends that we've lost or I guess the consequences of what yeah. we've seen and, and why those happens. We might even be able to summarize those in the in the future. But no, that's a really good that's a really good insight actually because something that I probably forgot to a certain degree. I mean obviously we've got that safety background. There is that sense of once you get in the aircraft that you know, you need to be safe, you need to be aware of what's going on because the consequences are much higher if you get it wrong. Yeah, and one of the other things that I've kind of got in the back of my mind too is I don't want to be complacent in the possibility of like having an engine failure or something because yeah. an engine failure is just as likely to happen on my first solo as it is at any other yeah. point in my career. Yeah. Um, and that's a really good attitude to have. And, you know, even looking at our sort of little historical perspective there with De Rosier and his aeronautical kind of launch in the balloon and if you read into the background of it you do see them thinking through the issues but they've got nothing to fall back on there's nothing except a whole bunch of failures beforehand whereas the great beauty of aviation today is we do stand on the shoulders of everyone that's gone before us and you, you don't even realize it. you pick up a basic textbook it's it is the collected combined wisdom of yeah. hundreds of years or at least decades to help us and help us be safer and yet what's strange is once we get into all that safety stuff and start talking more about it, you'll see that oftentimes the same mistakes are made no matter the platform over and over again so we'll talk more about that but what about you sam when you first flew in 1972 was there any sort of concern that you had or having been the sort of kid that wanted to be a pilot all mm. my life it it immediately uh, cemented in my mind that yes mm. this is what i want to do i really love mm. this and uh, i think it was a very encouraging sort of a, mm-hmm. a feeling to have because having already applied for the military i thought that was good uh, there's there's two trades of thought as to whether mm. it's any good to have that sort of a, yeah. a little bit of experience before you go i have nothing mm. uh, you could argue that either way but uh, to me it was a great comfort to know that i was in an environment i wanted to be in 
I think for me, my biggest concern was just knowing that we were being tested all the time. And I think that that probably eroded mm. to a certain, at least mm. in the early days, that joy of flight, because you're really just worried about making sure you met yeah. the standard. Yeah. And even when I got into tests and stuff later on, which we'll, we'll look at in a future podcast, I always did pretty well on the flights, but then the test, whatever my performance level was, I think it degraded by a good 50%. <laughs> so, or maybe that's an exaggeration, maybe 30% anyway, you know, and there's always, a heightened sense of nervousness and anxiety anyway before you go into one of those tests but i think that was probably my concern and just and just the feeling of wow this is a long journey you know in the military it's 18 months before they give you your wings or was back then and then then it's a number of years really before you're let, let loose as a pilot in command or an aircraft captain for me again i was just thinking man this is a long journey and i'm just at the start of it and i've always had that kind of impatient personality that wants everything to happen right now so it was hard just to sort of take one step at a time. Back in our, our day, we didn't have that, that long lead time. Mm. We, we knew that within 12 months mm. of starting your flying training military-wise, yeah. you would be a pilot in command. And what's great about what we're doing here is, uh, Luke, as you progress and get to that pilot in command status later on, we can reflect and talk about the differences mm. there as well. Yeah. So Luke's experience will be very close to mine because the period of time will be far shorter before they let yeah. you loose and I think after a minimum of 25 hours you can go for your recreational pilot's license they mm. reckon 30 hours is about kind of average because mm. it is competency based and yeah once you once you hit that and you pass the check ride and everything you can fly yep. by yourself solo mm. or with another passenger within 25 mm. nautical miles of the aerodrome so that'll well, be the next milestone I guess well you don't know this Luke but you're going to be Sam and I you're going to be our project so we, we oh, cool. wanna, it's not just about sitting here <laughs> and talking about it we actually want to help you as much as we can and not just sort of cool. wise counsel so hopefully it'll be wise probably more wise from sam than from me yeah you're um, <laughs> calling him an idiot or something like that yeah no <laughs> what'd you do that for Luke? yep that's it i think they don't use idiot now they use not to stand it not oh, to stand it that's yeah. politically correct <laughs> so we'll we will talk a lot more about that in the future but just going back again and this would harken back to what a, what we talked about in our first podcast which will be just that initial love and yearning to go flying. Um, having had your first flight now, I talked about hopes and concerns before, but what's a, what's a hope, what's a yearning? That... It's just always to get back in the air. So I guess one okay, of the downsides cool. of doing it civilly is it's like yeah. it's fairly financially draining as well. So I only really get to go flying once a week at this stage, and then all through the week I'm just like looking up and like, oh, this is a perfect day for flying. <laughs> uh, and it's um, what, what is the cost now? depends on if you're going dual or whether you're doing solo yeah. stuff but it can range anywhere between about 300 to 400 ish dollars an hour plus like ground briefing so it's mm. a great well, okay. well, that's that's not bad really mm. because like we're talking 2016 mm. now yeah in 1972 I was paying probably around a hundred dollars for an hour so Mm. when you think of that period of time that's pretty good yeah you'd find proportionately it's probably was a lot more back then in terms of the the minimum wage and all that kind of stuff so you're probably paying a fair bit more I think it has come down I think there's been a few efficiencies Mm. and obviously you know we've talked before because the idea is you know you might might go on rotoring in the future and obviously rotoring is a lot more for those people that don't know but so that was your hope. How about yours? Can you remember any sort of sense of yearning or hope for the future after that first flight? Anything that was left? Yeah, I just wanted to get on that course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ASAP. Yeah, yeah. And we'll talk more as we go into the future about military training versus civilian training, strengths, yeah. weaknesses, all that kind of stuff. 
Uh, for me, I don't think I've ever had flying in my blood like some people, like they just need to mm. fly, but it was pretty cool launching into the air yeah. and I did want to get back, but again, I really just wanted to be as good as I could and I ended up making a few mistakes in the way I managed my time and we'll do a future podcast on time management and you know trying to help you Luke as well yeah. with using the time on the ground to the maximum because there are some good things I mean I don't know if you keep a prep book we might talk more about that in the future yeah, and obviously we'll have Sam and I to share those kinds of things so that was first flight compared to what was it 1783 with the aeronauts yeah. launching themselves into the sky with their <laughs> essentially paper mache balloon. I'll put a link on the website, either the Wikipedia article or the book, which is a really, it's a good investment. I think it's only 10 bucks on Kindle, Aeronauts. Any final words? I'm excited about the future. And I think I kind of feel a bit like you did at the start where I'm just impatient. I just want to hope and get through it. And but I'll tell you what, just try and enjoy it as well, mate, because it's almost like, I guess, having kids. Like you kind of want your kids to grow up quickly, especially when they're not sleeping and stuff. Yeah. But then you get to this stage and you look back and go, wow, that went really quick. And try and, I guess, savor the moment as well because mm. before you know it, you'll be old like me. So, but enjoy it. How about you, Sam? Any final well, thoughts? Well, yeah, I've got a, I never heard the one about aeronauts, but I think that's mm. really great. And I noticed your instructor took some paper along with her. So paper or hay would be good. And so if you start running out of lift, <laughs> just light it up. Just ignite the paper in the air. Well, we used to really get your instructor's attention. Well, when we flew Hueys together, we used to have an ashtray, mm. which no one ever used, oh, yeah, except yeah. for certain pilots. A certain pilots, but who shall remain nameless. nameless. <laughs> well, Bernie used to smoke, you know, your instructor used to smoke cigars when, uh, Did he? in the helicopter. Yeah. He never told me that. Oh, yeah. Well, when I used my assertiveness to ask why that certain individual was smoking, he just laughed and in his British accent said, Parky, what are you worried about? There's a great big fire behind us anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Called the jet engine. Anyway, so on that note, we might finish. Hmm. Cancel Sawatch is the last radio call a pilot makes when a flight has landed safely. The SAR in Sawatch is an acronym for search and rescue. When a pilot radios cancel Sarwatch, they let air traffic services know they have landed safely and the search and rescue watch can be cancelled. If the flight has been flown safely and professionally, then a cancel Sarwatch call must surely epitomise the spirit of aviation, because it will realistically represent the totality of a pilot's attitude, training, experience and wisdom in bringing the aircraft back home safely. Cancel Sarwatch, the call we hope every pilot makes, every flight, in the name of our podcast. Again. Thanks for listening and don't forget to comment and rate us on iTunes and to visit us at www.cancelsarwatch.com where you'll find additional content to help you cancel Sarwatch. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hit your Cancel Sarwatch bookmark in about two weeks for our next episode.